0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 103.9 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to
2: Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross
0: welcome to tech talk radio we are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford university talking technology i'm dr richard church and i'm jim russ lots of activity going on in technology as always now the police are giving out ring doorbells because it's such a great way to do surveillance in the neighborhood Hmm. yeah so they have have a program where if you if you if you work with the police department they will give you a ring doorbell or else give you it at a very low price Boeing is actually still working on that 737 MAX, uh, trying yeah. to fix it up. Now they're, they're, now they're going to have two computers on that, uh, on the system that automatically adjusts the, the angle, the attitude of the plane. I'll talk a bit about that, and it's sort of how Boeing got in such a big mess. Uh, it all goes back to when they merged with McDonnell Douglas, actually. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the history uh, and Boeing sort of lost their engineering mojo after that, uh, after that, uh, after that merge. Uh, the Pentagon is now launching surveillance balloons and they're going to keep track of cars 24 huh. seven. We'll see how much we like that. They're, they're doing it, they're doing <laughs> it on the, um, in, in the, in the, in the Midwest right now and And they're basically, you know, tracking uh, narcotic trafficking that's, you know, tracking homeland security threats. And so we are becoming the surveillance state piece by piece. Bird scooters have now released a brand new model, Bird 2.0. That is harder to that is harder to that is that is har- harder to uh, to to take apart and, and vandalize. Uh huh. Now they still haven't solved the throwing in the river problem, but, <laughs>
3: but, but 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 I think they need to make them weigh
0: like a ton. <laughs> that way you can't pick them up. That's right. Now this week we're going to feature the man who developed the programming language Python, Guido van Rossum. And he developed the programming language Python, which is actually one of the most popular programming languages now. I'm going to give a little history of Guido, and then we'll talk about why Python is such a great programming language and why it is so popular. And if you, if you, if you want it into the programming it, maybe that's the first one you should learn because it's very intuitive. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter
4: in your mailbox.
0: Yes, we have an email from Brian in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an OfficeJet 8500, and I keep getting the paper jam message, but I can't find a paper jam. I've looked and looked and looked. I need my printer, and it won't work. What are my options? Well, paper jams can be a problem, particularly if to pull the paper out backwards when trying to fix the jam. Because if the paper rips off, you've got a little piece of paper caught in there, and that will and it'll be hard to get, and that will create a jam. In the 8500, you'll need a flashlight to look for small bits of paper. First, you've got to pull out the paper tray and look for loose paper. Then you go to the back and remove the duplexer and look for paper. You open the duplexer and look for paper. If all that doesn't work, you open the printer lid to look for paper. And this is where you need a flashlight. Make certain you move the print heads and look on both sides and try to look for any small pieces of paper caught in the rollers. If that still doesn't remo- work, remove the print heads and look again. And your last option is to clean the rollers in the back of the printer with distilled water and a clear and a clean cloth. And uh, if none of that works, just call servicing because I I don't have any more suggestions. But it is hard to sometimes find a paper jam in in those office jets. We've got an email from June in Burke. Dear Doc, I don't know if you've mentioned this on the show, but do you recommend the data blocker that you use if you're plugging into a public Wi-Fi or a rental car connection? June, security conscience in Burke. Well, June, you're right. If you plug your iPhone or your smartphone just with the US into a USB port for charging, it turns out that you are exposing your phone to malicious software because actually, they have they if you have if you've logged into your phone, when you plug it in, that data port has access to the data on your phone. And people have been known to install malicious software on, you know, public Wi-Fi charging um, areas. And so they do make um, a, a data blocker that you can get, where you it will still use the uh, USB port, but it blocks the data and it only allows the charge to come through. Now I don't have it. I don't have a data blocker. I just didn't need another device. What I do, I just don't use those USB charges ch- ports, and I I basically just use my uh, I just plug it into the to the one ten, and there's no issue there. Then I then I plug it into my uh, into my power pack that's that's just plugged into the power. And so I, I never actually use the USB ports in in the airport because I just don't uh, trust them. Now I do use the USB ports on the airplane because if I want to listen to um, music or the likes, or sometimes that's the only charging option on the airplane. I will do it on the airplane. I, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just too trusting, but I just feel like the airplane location is a little bit more secure than the than the lobby. But that's not a bad idea. Maybe I'll, maybe yeah, for the airplane, maybe I'll get a USB. Data blocker, hmm. you, you know, when if, if I want to charge on the airplane, uh, a nice uh, nice email, June. We got an email from Al in Waldorf, uh, Maryland. Hello, Doc and Jim. I'm a longtime listener in Waldorf, and I've heard your concerns about public Wi-Fi without a wi- without a VPN. As a former Intel guy, I always think of security and avoid putting anything personal on the air. Now my questions about the security of computers in hotel business centers. I travel a few times a year, and, don't, and I and I don't have a smartphone with me, and I, think I have to check my email to uh, you know to avoid coming home to hundreds of old emails. I worry about the security or lack thereof of these in these hotel computers. Putting you know putting my password into that uh, email account, such a computer, maybe there's a, a keylogger on it. Uh, what are my options? Thanks for your interesting show, Al and Walt Waldorf. Well, Al, you are right. Those uh, hotel business centers, in fact, are very frequently infected with, with key loggers because people can go in there. They have access to the machine. And if the, if the hotel isn't really security conscious, somebody could come in there, put in a USB... Uh, put in a USB connector and they could install keylogger software on this computer. And you wouldn't even know it. And what it does, it logs your keys, keystrokes, including your log on credentials to your bank accounts, whatever. And it sends those keystrokes by email to the person that installed it. And so they get real time notification as you are keying in. And that is a real problem. And the, and the FBI has made warnings of that. Now, so, uh, whenever uh, I'm traveling, if I have to use um, one of the uh, one of the business uh, computers, I go down and I look at it. Some hotels have gotten smart, and what they do is when a when a user logs off, it automatically erases all the files, and in fact, um, and it won't allow you to install anything. So they are systematically getting better and better and better. But you can't count on it because these guys at the hotels don't know what's going on. Now, if you have to check your email and you're worried about a keylogger getting your password, then you must implement two-factor authentication. So then even if they get your password uh, and you, you know, in order to log on to your email account, they're, they're going to have to uh, have your cell phone in order to actually complete the transaction because you'll put in the code from your cell phone to actually do the final login. Now, you might also try something else. You might um, change the pass. You might, you know, after you've used uh, the hotel uh, business uh, kiosk, you could just change the password in your email account. And, and that, that might be a, a better way to do it. Now there are also, I mean, a lot of times people have to print a document at the business center, and the business centers have now gotten a little bit smarter. They, they frequently, and they, sh- they they don't let you put a, a a USB thumb drive in the computer, obviously because that's how you install yeah. keylogger. Yeah. So and so the only way to print a document, you've got to email it yourself, which means that you have to. Uh, Means that you have to use your email account. Now, what I'll frequently do is, I'll just get one of these throwaway email accounts. You know, you just, you know, you just, you just have a throw, like a burner. Yeah, well, a burner. <laughs> yeah, a burner. And so then, and there are a lot of you. You, you just, you can Google disposable email accounts. There's just there are just dozens of them out there, and you just, what you do is you just create, uh, create an email account, and you can, uh, and you can do that. I, even there's even one. Um, uh, but but you have to get one of these burner accounts that that will allow you to have an attachment, and then you can just print from that email account, and then your your account is uh, is really not exposed. I'll tell you one thing: when I'm traveling, I uh, I never do banking. <laughs> Even though my banking yeah. is two-factor authentication, I just I just don't do banking, mm-hmm. and uh, and I only if I if I use an email uh, when I'm traveling, I always make certain I have two-factor authentication. Now that's a problem when you're traveling. That means that your cell phone has got to be functioning to get a text message. So if you're not on a data plan over there, if you don't have connectivity. Your uh, two-factor authentication is going to fail, so you got to make certain that you've got a way to get the second factor so you can actually log on to your email. But that was a, a very good question. I think eventually the hotels are going to fix this security problem. There are companies now that that have security suites for these business centers, and those are those are those are pretty good. The other thing that I do is that if I ever use one of those business center computers, you know how it tri- I try I I never let it remember the password and I go and I and I I I basically remove the the history in the browser. I I delete all passwords. I I clean up the machine before I before I log off. But of course that doesn't fix a keylogger problem, right. but at least it keeps somebody after me from being able to get into the, get get into my email account. We got an email from Rochelle in Falls Church. Dear Tech Talk, I'm considering taking an online class and I'm wondering whether a distance education is as effective as traditional education. Enjoy the show, Rochelle. Well, I, I can talk great about that really. Yeah, that's a great question because um, they are different, but, but you, you, you have the same learning outcomes. The, the thing with um, um, when you go to class, you can sit there and listen to the lecture and you can have class discussions which are nice. But when you are online, the, um, the material would normally be in the lecture. You, you, you can basically review it online as, you know, as basically lessons that you read. And then instead of a class discussion, you have a threaded discussion where, uh, where the teacher will guide this discussion. So you give you some sort of challenging uh, question that requires critical thinking and you, and you have to participate in the threaded discussion. You know, you know, you've got to log on and participate in the threaded discussion almost, almost every day. And then the the online classes can have uh, group work where, where there'll be a, you know, you you might work on a project with other people in the class and many of the online platforms have video where you, you can actually form a, a little group and you can see each other by video and you can work on the group anytime you want. And so if you have a teacher that guides the thread of discussion, if you have a teacher who provides very good projects and helps you work on the projects in class, the effectiveness of online education is as as good as uh, as as on ground. There's really there's really no difference. However, it does take more discipline. And so, students that are say marginal students they just wait to the last minute to do everything, are not going to do very well in an online class. It, it takes discipline. You've got to work on it every right. day, every day, every day.
3: It takes effort to show up to class, and if you don't have that element of it, it's easy to fall behind, isn't it?
0: That it yes, it is. So we typically, if we have students in, at Stratford that are that are struggling in the residential classes, we don't let them take online classes. Mm. Uh, but but if, But if a student is really studious and dedicated, no problem at all. Online is as good as on ground. We got an email from Jim in San Diego. Dear Doc and Jim, I heard that Capital One was hacked. I've got an account with them. This should, is big. Should I be worried or, should, or or do anything quickly, Jim in San Diego? Well, you are right, Jim. Capital One was hacked. Approximately a hundred million people in the U.S. and six million people in Canada are affected. That's uh, that that covers around. Uh, there are about a hundred and forty. Social Security numbers were compromised. Approximately 80,000 linked bank account numbers were compromised. The breach also included a lot of personal and financial information that can be used for identity theft. Now, Capital One did say that no credit card account numbers or usernames and passwords were compromised. It is believed that the person who, who stole this data was arrested before she had an opportunity to use it or to sell any of the stolen data yeah she put it on github or something and then she was she really didn't know what she was doing she she didn't she didn't hide her identity she's been bragging what a great hacker she is so the police located her literally within an hour and they had her arrested and she did post the data online but but it was pulled down so quickly it's not clear that anybody, any if anybody was compromised now if you are one of the 100 million capital one customers in the us who were affected by this breach Capital One will contact you directly and let you know about it. Hmm. So if you're not contacted, you're okay. They will also provide you with instructions for signing up for free credit monitoring and identity protection services. Um, And it won't cost you anything, and they'll give you that for a year or two.
3: Did you see – I mean, this is the master – there was one person behind this. Mm -hmm. Did you see any of the social media postings from this person? No, clearly some mental issues. Going yeah, she,
0: she, yeah, I'd, I'd, I, read about them, but I didn't see them directly. But yeah, she
3: was, she was a wacko. There was a lot, and, and I think she had been a he previously. Oh,
0: now that I didn't know. Yes. Okay. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. So you really have the in depth knowledge. I, of this I hack. did.
3: I. You know what? I figured you'd be talking about <laughs> this right. today, so I, uh, I fell down a rabbit hole.
0: Okay. Very good. We got an email from John in Scranton, dear Tech Talk. I've heard so much about phishing emails. How can I protect myself from them? It seems like they come almost every day. Love the show, John and Scranton. Well, phishing, and that's spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G emails, usually claim to be from a bank or from PayPal or from Amazon or from Facebook or some other online entity that has a legitimate reason for contacting you. And then the goal of these crooks is to basically steal your username and password so they can take over your account. So what they do, they'll say something like, your account has been, uh, is, has been, will be closed unless you click on this link and log in and reactivate it. And, or there will be something like that, something that tells you something bad is happening to your account, but you can fix it if you click on this link and go fix it. And, um, and of course, when you click on the link, you're going to go to a fake website that looks like your bank or looks like PayPal or looks like Facebook. And then when you log in with your username and password, it will say, it didn't work, and and we'll say try again. But of course, by that time, they already will have had your username and password sent to them, and within a minute, they're probably logging onto your account. So it's mm. just it's really fast. Mm. So so you know, and these things look really real, and people get people get um, get hooked in by these things. So first of all, how can you, they're pretty easy to spot. Um, First of all, they'll almost never use your name directly. Instead, it'll be something like "Hello, valued PayPal calendar <laughs> customer." It it will refer it it will refer to you by your email address, perhaps. In contrast, a legitimate email from a reputable company will always address you by your name. Now, the content of the message will you know frequently is kind of poor English because it's written by these hackers from other countries, and in many cases, it, there's there 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 are just you know because they're written by non-native speakers. And the most telling thing, you'll be asked to click a button or a link that goes to a website. This is a huge red flag. I never click a link in a, in an email, ever. Mm-hmm. So, like, if they tell me my PayPal account is in trouble, I never would never click that link. What I would do, I would go to the web browser, and I would go to PayPal on my own, and I would log into my account. If there's a problem, I'd check on it. But never use the link in the email, because that link is what gets you in trouble, now, if you suspect that the email is fraudulent you, and you really can't tell for sure, just don't click on any links. I actually, I actually never click on a link in an, in an email, ever. I'll just go directly to the website. Now, if you happen to slip up and click on it, and I know a lot of people do this thing, what, you, what do you do first? Yeah. First of all, try to get to your account as quickly as possible before they hijack it and set up two-factor authentication, Right away, that, that that will protect you from stolen email, uh, st- stolen uh, passwords, because they 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 don't have your cell phone. Change the password on your account to a new password as, as easily as you can, and then you might want to run through a, do a malware scan on your PC or your Mac, because that you know chances are that maybe they maybe this when they clicked it and you went to this fraudulent website, they installed some malware on your computer, so you got a double whammy. So that's what you have to do in all of those cases. And uh, just stay away from those phishing emails because they are one of the most effective ways to, uh, to do nasty things. Yep. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at, at Stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It
3: is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2 and 103.9 FM HD 2. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following
2: us at WFED Tech Talk.
0: Yes, today we're going to feature Guido van Rossum. <laughs> Guido van Rossum is a Dutch programmer who's best known as author of the Python programming language. Guido was born January 31st, 1956, in the Netherlands. He received a master's degree in mathematics and computer science from the University of Amsterdam in 1982. In 1982 he was hired by a Dutch company CWI in Amsterdam where he worked on the A in the ABC programming environment for beginners he worked on distributed operating systems and he authored software for multimedia presentations now in December of 1989 he was looking for a hobby programming project that would keep him occupied during the week around Christmas see with the, the whole office was closed for a week in Guido We'd have said, well, "What am I going to do if I <laughs> if I don't go to work?" Well, <laughs> right, maybe not need a
3: life. Back he needed then. a life. I think a, th- that seems to be <laughs> a a big problem in the IT field, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. So he so he said, "Okay." So he decided that that he would that he would work on write an interpreter for a new scripting language for Unix and C hackers. So he wanted to write a new scripting language. Uh, and then, and then, instead of compiling it, you you have an interpreter that basically at the time of that you run it, and it does runtime compilation. That's called an interpreter. So he was going to write that for a new scripting language. Now, the new scripting language that he created, he called Python. That was kind of a working title. Yeah. You know, he's uh, because what he does at home when he's programming, he watches the Monty Python Flying Circus. It was oh, one of his oh, favorite shows. Oh, does he now? Yeah. I'm a lumberjack and I'm all you
3: okay. mean this Monty Python? Yeah. There you go. All right. <laughs> one of my favorite bits. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And that's anyway. what it is. And so he he would sit
0: there and program and watch Monty Python. And so he said, "Okay, I'm going to call this Python." <laughs> so Python became an interpreted object oriented programming language and his goal was to make it uh, extremely easy to use so he made it he made he made the uh, you know he made the commands very much english-like so that you, you you can you can read the program and you understand what it's doing he also made it, uh, made it so that it did a lot of work in the background, so you didn't have to cl- declare variable types. It would automatically figure out what type of variable you were talking about. It would be self-typing. And so he made it very, very easy for beginners to use. And, um, and it was his objective. And then the interpreter does all the work in the background to figure out what's going on as it, uh, as it executes the program. Now, in April 1995, he became the, a guest researcher for NIST, this is local in in Washington. That's, mm-hmm. that's the National Institute for Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, and he worked also for the Corporation for National Research Initiatives out in Reston, Virginia, CNRI. That's where Bob actually you know, Bob Kahn Surf, you know, invented TCPIP, and that's Bob Kahn's. Uh, uh, company out there in Reston, uh, Corporation for National Research Initiatives, CNRI. In May 2000, he became a full-time employee of a CNER, the uh, National Research, uh, Corporation for National Research Initiatives, and he, and he did the same work there. Now, his NIST research was on mobile agents in distributed systems using interpreted languages. So he was making mobile applications, in distributed systems using interpreted languages and most of his work involved a particular interpreted programming language python now in 2000 guido was hired by bopen.com as director of the python labs in 2003 was hired by Zope corporation as director of python labs so you see his whole life turned into python it turned out and i'm going to explain this a little bit later python was so easy to use and you could develop projects so quickly that it just took off by storm, and companies were using Python for almost everything. Mm-hmm. So he became, he became really a luminary in, in the tech field because he's the man who created Python. Now, while he was working for Google, in 2005 he was w- hired by Google to also continue developing the Python language. Now, while working at Google, Van Rossum developed Mondrian, which is a web-based code review system written in Python. It's used within the company to, as part of their um, you know, part of their backend code review process. Now in the Python community, von Rosen is known as the benevolent dictator for life, BFD.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and <Isn't>
3: that BFL
0: <laughs> Oh yeah, it should be BFL. <laughs> oh yeah, it should be B- oh, BD Oh no BD- BD- F. BDFL. Oh, BDFL. Oh yeah, been BDFL. A, yeah, I, I'm gonna have to get the acronyms correct. Yeah, BDFL. That's okay. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> it's been a long. It's
3: been. Yeah, you've been you've been away, and we mean away. Yeah, I've been
0: away. Yeah, and so yeah, I'll have to talk. You know, my uh, my Netflix account was hacked.
3: While you were gone in India,
0: yeah, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna explain how I got it. I got it back,
3: but of course you so, did. So You're I'll, the tech guy,
0: so we'll we'll have a story about that. Okay. Now 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 how now in, and he can as as the benefit, benevolent dictator for life, he continued to oversee the Python development because he he released it as open source code, and so he he was basically managing an op, open source project. Now in April of 2018. He gave up his position as benevolent dictator and passed the mantle to others. Now, in January of 2013, Von Rosen started working for Dropbox, and Python is the backbone of Dropbox Mm -hmm. since it's very early days. So a lot of the applications that you know and love are all written in Python. Python has grown to become a popular programming language and one of the most used languages for hackathons. Hackathons. This this is where people go in, you know, programmers get together and they'll and they'll spend a weekend trying to do hacking, and who can do the most hacking or, or write programs, hacking programs wins the hackathon. Also, if, if if you are interested in just getting into programming and you just want to cut your teeth on it, it's a great first programming language. You it's easy to learn, very intuitive, and there are a lot of free re- resources on you know on the web to learn Python. And you'll be almost guaranteed to have a job if you're a Python programmer. Von Rosen received in two, the 2001 Award for Advancement in, of Free Software from the Free Software Foundation for his work on Python. In 2006, Von, Von Rosen was recognized as a distinguished engineer by the Association for Computing Machines. Guido lives in Belmont, California with his wife and, and um, their son. His website is... Python.org slash
3: squiggly Guido that's what that character is called the squiggly well, I call it a squiggly okay I wish it we... no it has another name I wonder what it is yeah well, you look that I call it a squiggly
0: okay it's, it, it's, it's this little curved line horizontal curved line uh, but if you just if you just uh, you know, Google Guido Von Rosen. You'll, you'll find his his website. Yes, you will. So there, are everything you wanted to know about Guido Von Rosen, the author of the Python programming language.
3: It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. Coming up, your chance to take knowledge of what uh, Doc was just talking about and turn it into free lunch. So uh, stay tuned. We will have the pop quiz coming up here on tech talk radio in just a few minutes stand stay with us we'll be right back
2: if it's technology it's tech talk radio it trends software the internet and it careers more of tech talk radio presented by stratford university coming up in a moment
5: Featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Shirts.
0: Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Such enthusiasm yes. for the show today. They've been I'm, saving it
3: up for a couple of
0: weeks. Yeah, I just love it. Now, this is not just a, a radio show. It's a classroom yeah. of the airways, and we do an assessment to see whether our audience has been listening. If you get the correct answer to our assessment, which is a pop quiz, you'll get an A-plus for today's show, and you will also get tickets to find Donnie in one of the Stratford University dining rooms. Early in the show, I talked about Guido van Rossum, best known as the author of the Python programming language. Where did the name Python come from?
5: If you know the answer to today's question, well, now's the time to pick up your device and give us a jingle. If you're dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Churse, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're ordering spam, sausage, eggs, and spam in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church.
3: Of course, Spam, Sausage, and Spam is a Monty Python reference. Yes, it, yes it is. it is. That is exactly right. There you go. All there right, we go. so, moving right along. So,
0: let's talk about my hacked uh, Netflix account. Yes. So I was I would I would log on to Netflix and I would get I'd put in my my uh, email address and they and it would go nowhere and I would get this error code, so I was uh, you know when I was uh, traveling I thought well maybe it's you know some something caused because I'm traveling and th- I got home it was uh, that same way on the on my computer it was that same that way on my. Um, on my laptop and also on the TV. Right. Everywhere, everywhere I had, uh, I could not get Netflix. So I, I, I called up and they said, well, <clears throat> give us your email address. So I gave them my email address and they said, well, that, that email address isn't registered with us at all. Wow. I said, well, I've been a member of Netflix for like, you know, eight, ten, I mean, as long as I can remember. And I've used that same email address forever. So they said, well, it's not registered. So then he said, well, give me the credit card. So then I had to guess what credit card, what credit card I had. Because so it's
3: been so long, right? It's
0: been so long. So the first credit card I guessed was wrong. The second credit card, it was the correct credit card number. And then I had the security code and everything. So as soon as I gave him that credit card number, he went into the account and switched the email address for the account back to me. Because apparently somebody hacked it, and then they changed the email again. So he switched back to me right away, uh, you know, as soon as I sort of proved who I was. And then he sent me to that email address a password reset, and I reset the password. And uh, and he says, now, let me ask you this. Did you use the same password on the reset? And I said, no. I, I made a different password.
3: Well, that's because you're smart.
0: And that's right. But, but here's the thing on my Netflix account. See, I'm not the only one that uses it. It's like a family account. Ah. And so the thing is, if I have some super complicated password, I am all the time having to go in there and give IT assistance. So my Netflix password is, I would say, weak. It's a weak password, but it's it's like a trade-off between security and convenience. Gotcha. So it's it's not too weak. And so, I, I, so I, I, I made the password slightly more difficult by making it a few characters longer, but it's still a pretty weak password, but it's one that my family can remember. There you go. So there we go. So now I've got my, I got my Netflix back, and I've got to give them kudos. They handled that really well. It didn't take me any more than about uh, 10 minutes to get it back.
3: That's excellent. We've got, uh, we have got, turn that up just a little bit. We have somebody who would like to play our quiz. Let's try the phones here. Line one, this is Ken, who is calling us from Glen Oaks, Maryland. Uh, Ken, are you there? Yes.
5: Yeah. Yes. Earlier in the
0: Scherz. show, we talked about Guido van Rossum, of course, the author of the Python programming language. Where did the name Python come from?
5: Yes, he
4: was a big fan of the Monty Python Flying Circus. Very good. That is the correct answer.
3: Very good. (laughs) Excellent, Ken. Hang on the phone. We're going to send you back over to the uh, production area, and uh, we're going to get your information and send that prize off to you. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2 and 1039 FM HD 2. We'll be back with more of the show in just a minute. Stand by.
4: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Shirts of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
0: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. So this is the question. Yes. Why is Python so popular despite the fact... That it's very slow in
3: execution. Good question. Don't
0: it's not a good question. Okay, Python's one of the most widely used programming languages. It's been around for 28 years now. That's when that's when Guido took off for the Christmas break to develop it. 28 years ago. Now Python is popular because it's highly productive. In other words, you can write applications quickly compared to other programming languages like C, C++, or Java. It's much more concise and expressive language, requires less time and effort, and requires many, many fewer lines of code to perform the same operation. Now, that's why it's slow, because, uh, you know, you write a simple line of code, but there's a lot of back-end stuff to to execute, and, and Python does all that in the background, and that slows it down. Now, Python allows developers to write fewer lines of code uh, than any other other languages. For instance, if you'd write a program and write a pro, the same program, one in Python and one in Java, the Python program would be three to five times shorter than the Java program. And that makes a huge difference. Plus, Python is easy to learn, even for beginners and newbies. Now, Python execution time is slower than lower level languages like C. See, in Python, the code looks, very close to how humans think. For this purpose, it must abstract the details of the computer from the user, from the programmer, like memory management and pointers. So, all of that back end stuff that computer programs have to do, all their housekeeping, is hidden. And you don't see it. You just write a simple line of code. But because it does all that work in the background, it runs slower. Now, Python is also interpreted, which means it's um, it's it's basically converted to runtime code at the time it's run. It's interpreted line by line by line rather than compiled to machine language in one big burst. So during execution, the Python code is interpreted instead of being compiled, and so it just it, so that also slows it down. Also, Python is a dynamically typed program, and so unlike statically typed languages like C or C++, where you declare a variable like an, as a string which would be, um, you know, a string of characters, or you declare it as Boolean, 0, zero or 1, or you declare it an integer. Um, this thing is, is dynamically typed, and you don't have to declare typing, which means it's got to do a lot of lookup in the background to figure out what type you're talking about. And the less the programmer does, the more the computer has to do the work. And each attribute, like typing, requires another lookup. That slows it down. Furthermore... Because Python is an interpreted language, it can only execute a single thread at a time, which means it will not support multi-core processors. It just is is a single core at a time. So, all those reasons mean that it runs slower. So, why is it so popular? Okay, 90% of the time, the slower performance of Python really doesn't matter. Because the end users can't really tell the difference between a thousandth of a second or a hundredth of a second. I mean, to, to the end user, for most applications, it just doesn't matter. In addition, since Python was developed 28 years ago, computers have gotten dirt cheap. And with all the cloud computer, we now have processing power out the gazoo. So computers, servers, and hardware have become cheaper and faster. And so speed is not such a big deal now because you can just have massive cloud-based computer systems that can run stuff. So now computer time is cheap, so you just run you just you just you just run it on a on a, on, a, on a faster and faster computer. Here's the real reason that it's popular. You can write code faster, you can prototype things faster. You can this enables companies to innovate and get ahead of the competition faster. And it turns out that the most expensive thing in code development is the salaries of the programmers, and if you can make the programmers program more effectively, make them more productive, you're way ahead. So Python is just winning the 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 battle for almost all the applications, like like TensorFlow out of Google. All, all of their tools at at Google are, TensorFlow is their machine learning system. It's all written in Python. You know, Dropbox is written in Python. All the big uh, you know social media sites have all written in Python now. Python is not suitable when you need speed, okay because it's not fast. So if you if you want to write a game, you're not going to write it in Python because games got to be fast. There can't be any lag time. So you will notice the difference. The user will notice a difference of speed if they're doing a game. So games have got to be written in in C you know C++ or Java something faster. And not, not Python. It's also not good for writing operating systems because they have to be speed or any kind of system-level application. So there are certain core applications that Python can't be used for. But for the bulk of the business applications, Python is it. It is the most popular language. And I'm telling you, if you want to get into the computer field, I'd start learning Python, and you'll always have a job you realize that Amazon owns nearly half of all the public cloud services out there? According to Gartner, I, I had no idea how big Amazon was. The worldwide infrastructure for uh, worldwide infrastructure as a service market, this is cloud, grew 31% in 2018. And it reached a total dollar value in terms of revenue of $32 billion, up from $24 billion in 2017. Amazon's web services... Represented forty-seven percent of that revenue. Nearly, ha- you know, they're, they're almost fifteen and a half billion dollars. Almost forty-seven uh, percent of the total worldwide cloud. It turns out Microsoft has got about fifteen percent of the cloud business. Alibaba in China has got around seven point seven percent. Google only has four percent of the cloud business, and IBM only has one point eight percent. So Amazon, being the first mover in this thing, has really has really taken off all the cloud services I mentioned. They've all they're all growing at uh, at double double digit growth now in 20 from between 2017 and 2018, Amazon grew 27 percent, uh, and they then they finally reached in 2018 a uh, total revenue from cloud services of 15.5 billion dollars. That is a huge profit margin, a, a huge profit source of profits for Amazon. Now police. Are giving Ring doorbell cameras in exchange for info.
3: It's a great idea.
0: This, I mean, have you ever noticed? Now everybody's got these Ring doorbells or mm-hmm. these video door, and, and you walk in front of somebody's house and and they turn on and they take a video. So now what's happening and what we've discovered is that when there are like uh, like some sort of violence, or some kind of crime in the neighborhood, many times there's a Ring doorbell that picks it up, and and then the police can use that as as data. So it's almost like These Ring doorbells are providing a surveillance system that the police can use. And actually, Ring, Amazon purchased Ring last year, and they realized that this is an opportunity. So they started a program where they would partner with police departments. For instance, the El Monte, California Police Department entered into an official partnership with Ring. Now, it gives officers access to an online platform where they can ask citizens for footage from their doorbell cameras that may be connected to a crime investigation so they can so they have access to the Ring database they know who has a Ring device in the area of the crime and they're able to email that customer and ask for permission to look at the video from their camera and it makes you know collecting this data really fast now in exchange for that access to the Ring database. The police departments promote the Ring cameras and its associated crime watch app called Neighbors. Now, since the uh, since that police department started using Ring, they've added over a thousand new users to the system. So they're actually promoting Ring because it gives them better better access to data. So far, over 225 police departments have entered into a contractual relationship with Ring. Uh, which was required by Amazon, by the way, last year for $800 million. Some departments give out free or discounted Ring devices to the community, and many are subsidized using taxpayer money. Ring believes that this product can drastically reduce crime in communities, but critics have questioned those claims. Ah. And many people accuse the Neighbors app, this is the Ring Neighbors app, of creating a surveillance
3: state. Well, I wonder in the long term, as these things become more pervasive and the bad guys become more aware that they are out there and they are being watched, one, will they find a way to circumnavigate these things or disable them? Two, will it really have an effect on crime? And um, you know what? I got to say, the the surveillance state, Mm -hmm. uh, especially with what we're going through in Baltimore, I think any tool you can get to protect yourself Go for it. Go for it. Especially yeah. a, a legal thing, a, a, a legal, not illegal. I mean, you know, in Maryland, uh, we we are not allowed to carry guns. You're not allowed to protect yourself with a firearm in, in mm-hmm. the state of Maryland. So uh, you know, and with with Baltimore being one of the most dangerous cities in the country in the world, so so only the bad guys have guns. Only the bad guys have yeah. guns. So because, so
0: because the bad guys actually don't follow the law.
3: <laughs> exactly. Well, you know what? If you don't want to get caught on camera doing something bad, don't do something bad. Yeah. Right. Isn't that the way you mm-hmm. should look at it? Yeah.
0: So what, what will happen? I I I think the uh, people will start using uh, you know masks more because they'll just assume yeah. there's going to be a ring device around, and then and then it won't be that uh, that effective.
3: That's a good point. All right, let's take a break here, and we will come back in just a minute. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. I'll be right back.
1: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk
4: Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
0: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talk, talking technology. Bird Scooter is making Paris its second home. Now, Bird is planning to build a new hub in Paris and hire over 1,000 people over the next two years to spur the growth of its scooter sharing service across the European continent. Bird CEO Travis Vanderzanden said that the hub is the company's second European home. Bird first launched its dockless electric scooter rental in Paris last October. Since then, its scooters have become ubiquitous all over Paris. The hub will complement Bird's service center in Paris where employees perform maintenance on the fleet of e-scooters. A dozen startups operate approximately 20,000 scooters in Paris. That number is wow. expected to double by the end of the year. Now, the lack of regulations surrounding their use and storage has prompted Paris officials to impose a list of fines for infractions. Now, I think, I think Baltimore should do this. Starting July first, there'll be a spot fine of forty dollars if a scooter has bad parking.
3: Oh yeah. I agree.
0: Okay. And that and those scooters that are caught laying on the sidewalk will be hit with a fine of $152. And that is just billed directly to Bird.
3: Yeah, and that was, okay, well, you want to you hear something, and I'm glad you brought up Baltimore because this past week, the Baltimore Department of Transportation uh, announced its 2019 dockless vehicle program, huh. and they have uh, they have picked four companies to allow them to operate in Baltimore City, Lime, Bolt, Spin, and Jump. Guess who's not on the list? They dropped Bird. Bird. Wow. Bird is not on that list, and I have not had a chance to ask anybody why that is. But
0: I think this idea, I mean, if if you park a car improperly, you get a parking ticket. Or you get towed. I think giving tickets to these scooter. I think this is a, a brilliant.
3: Absolutely now, agree with you. Now, yes. the other
0: thing that Paris did, you know, now these bird scooters go 19 miles an hour. Yeah. They are limiting the speed to 12.5. That's a good idea. So, so far, more than 1,000 tickets have been issued and about 600 scooters have been impounded. Mm -hmm. And a new surveillance force has been set up. So I think Paris is actually regulating this thing the right way. And it will force the scooter companies. I think maybe they should have docks where you've got to put it in the dock to, to basically stop the charge.
3: Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I don't know, but it's they are unsightly, and they're hazardous. People just take them, and they toss them wherever. And, that's right. Uh, yeah, I, and, and you know what? And I think what needs to happen in terms of these fines, here's how you fix it. Mm-hmm. You make the fine apply. You, you dump this thing on the sidewalk. It's the last user that gets the fine, or they split it. They find both the, 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 the scooter company and the last user.
0: It's it, But you'd have to prove that somebody didn't move it. See, the, the problem that's is somebody, somebody could come in who's not a user and they could move it. You, that's c- true. You could park it perfectly and somebody could come in and throw it on the sidewalk. That's a
3: very good point.
0: So it it's – but it's still Bird Scooter. And mm-hmm. so they'll just bill
3: Bird. <laughs> and you, you know what? If you hit them in the, in the wallet, that's that, – they, yeah.
0: they will then find a different way to do it. Mm-hmm. Do it prob- Now, Correct. Bird is releasing Bird 2. Bird is, 2. They just, un- they just uh, unveiled their most durable and advanced model. They, they'll begin replacing existing e scooters in the fall. Now, Bird 2 incorporates damage sensors that alert Bird mechanics if any issue occurs, such as rideability as it transports people around. Hmm. The tires won't puncture, puncture in the new design. There's also an anti tipping kickstand that will hopefully help Bird end complaints from pedestrians about scooters being thrown across problem. the side.
3: Yeah. After picking dozens of these things up and trying to put them out of the way, it's tough to keep them upright.
0: That's right. Now, this one will stand up. Bird 2 also does not have any exposed screws. The seamless design should make it harder for vandals to dismantle the scooter. But they still need some sort of anti-throw-in-the-river system. Yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't really... Like I said, make them weigh a ton.
0: That's right. Now, the bird scooter is 50% more capacity. The, the bird battery has 50% more capacity, and which suggests it'll have a range of 60 miles. Mm. So that's actually getting to be quite uh, quite a nice uh, yeah. quite a nice program. The Pentagon is testing mass surveillance balloons across the U.S., The U.S. military is conducting wide-area surveillance tests across six Midwest states using experimental high-altitude balloons. Up to 25 unmanned solar power balloons are being launched from in from rural South Dakota and drifting 250 miles through an area spanning portions of Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Missouri before concluding their trip in central Illinois. Traveling in the stratosphere at about 65,000 feet, the balloons are intended to provide persistent surveillance to locate and deter narcotic trafficking and homeland security threats. The balloons... Are carrying high-tech radars designed to simultaneously track many individual vehicles day or night through any kind of weather, test event commissioned by the U.S. Southern Command (Southcom), which was responsible for disaster response, intelligence operation, and security cooperation. The new balloon promises a cheap surveillance platform that could follow multiple cars and boats for an extended period of time. So this is more of the surveillance state coming back to roost. Mm, interesting. So Boeing is changing their uh, their their software again. They, they they found another bug. You know they, they, they you know originally they. Let me see. Do we have enough time? got
3: about uh, forty seconds.
0: Yeah. So what they did is that they're at, you know they they now using both sent both at, at attitude sensors for this thing rather than just one, and now they're adding a second computer in order to give more redundancy. But this goes back. I mean, actually to back when Boeing and uh, you know, uh, merged with uh, McDonnell Douglas, and uh, which was a defense contractor. Before the merge, Boeing was run by engineers, not by business people. And I think the old Boeing with the engineers would not have had this kludge with the software. They would have actually restructured the airflow surfaces on board the aircraft so the aircraft would naturally be stabilized rather than try to have a software fix. But... In order to save money, they did this software fix, which has really led to a lot of problems. Yeah. Listen, we love, love, love all your emails. You can email us at techtalk@stratford.edu, and we'll get back, get back to you as soon as we can. And we'd like you to check out the Stratford University website. And when you go to that website, which is at www.stratford.edu, tell them that you've heard about all those programs on Tech Talk Radio.